good morning. I'd like to uh, welcome you into uh, to Crossroads. If you are a visitor here, if you're a regular here, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we uh, last week kicked off 2023 by starting a new series called Back to the Basics, where uh, we're just looking at some of the very basic elemental things that we do in our worship service every single week. And it's not everything that we do in our worship service, but we're highlighting three specific ones uh, that we do as, as part of how we come together as one and worship God together as one. Last week we talked about prayer, and uh, specifically the, the power and the importance of praying together. Uh, today I've got a lot of ground I want to cover, so we're just going to dive right in, and we're going to talk about an element of the service that we typically put at the tail end of our service that you may overlook at times, we're going to talk about communion. And when we, on a normal basis, not always, but often we'll have our music time and we'll have our uh, sermon, whether it's Brad or myself, and then at the end of the sermon we'll come and take a few minutes and have communion. And I'll just be very honest with you, there are some weeks where I'm guilty of kind of looking right past it. Like, that's just something we do to wrap up our service. And yeah, we're going to sit and think about what Jesus did on the cross and, and call it good. But there's times that I kind of gloss right through that, whether it's me standing here on the stage or me sitting out there listening to somebody else preach. And I've got to make sure I don't do that. And, and my hope is that, that after we talk a little bit today, you won't do that anymore either. Because I would dare say in that three to five minute window, Whatever time frame we put on there, that's actually probably the, the, the most powerful and most important part of our service. And maybe even goes a step further than that. It might be the most powerful and important thing any of us do in our world and what's going on around us. Uh, communion is something that most churches do, uh, most every church does, whether it's uh, every week or on a, on a less seldom basis. Usually the what and the how and the when are, are different from church to church. Uh, I grew up in an Assemblies of God church, and we did not take it every week. We did communion, I think, about like once a quarter or so. It was, it was spread out more throughout the year. And, and on the one hand, that was good because it really made when we took it seem more important. Like that was a little extra special kind of night. And uh, when we took it, usually the, the elders of the church... Would, would serve it, and it would be kind of towards the end of the service, would bring the lights down, the band would be on stage really playing uh, soft, but, you know, kind of a full sound, and they would serve the trays across the room, you know, like we used to do, and it had the little cup of juice and a little cracker on there, and you would take them and hold on to them until everybody had them, and uh, then the, the men would work their way back to the front of the room and all stand there until they were all back, once they were all back, there was like 12 of them, our pastor would come forward, he would take the trays, put them up, and then he would take the last tray and serve the men who had served us. Then he would take one, he would go back up on stage, and one at a time, we would take the elements. And he would say, let's take our bread and, and hold it forward, and he would read a passage of scripture, and we would take the bread, and then uh, he'd pray over it, and we would sing a song, like, he was wounded for our transgressions. Remember that old hymn? We'd sing that together. And then after we'd sung through that a couple of times, we would take the cup, and he would have us hold the cup up the whole time. I'm like, okay, I'm getting exhausted. I'm thirsty because I just ate a cracker, and now this little grape juice in my hand, I'm getting tired. And, and he would go through the, the, the passage about the blood and about the cup. We would take it, and we would pray, and then sing, oh, the blood of Jesus. And, and that was communion. That's what we did. Uh, the first time I went to First Christian Church, which is the one my wife grew up in back in our hometown, they pass the trays, and, and I take mine, 
And I'm sitting there. I'm just kind of waiting for him to get up and talk. And he, I sit there a little bit longer, and then he gets up. And the, the guy gets up to, to, to say the prayer, and he's like, okay, well, let's pray for our offering now. I'm like, oh, I missed something. Like, <laughs> Somebody didn't tell me what to do here. I didn't realize that they got their cup, and they got their bread, and they just took it. And I realized, too, after I watched, some of them drank the cup and put it right back in the tray and passed it on down. I'm like, that's nasty. Like, I don't want your spittle in my communion cup that I might accidentally grab, you know, like, at least have the decency to put it in the little thing in front of you and leave it for somebody else to pick up, you know, I mean, you know, let's think through this, right? But we go to church, and as we take communion at different churches, we realize we all do it somewhat differently, and that's okay. During COVID, back during 2020, in the heart of COVID, when we were still trying to figure out what in the world was going on, uh, we were, were shut down in, in Oregon from gathering together for four months. And so we did church completely online for four months. We would go in and we would record our service ahead of time. We would record the music, record. I would go in like on a, usually a Wednesday morning and record my sermon. Then I would spend the weekend putting together this video so it looked like it was a live stream and run it at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. And it was kind of funny because for everybody else, they probably assumed it was a live stream, but I would sit on our couch at home in our living room next to my wife watching myself preach. If you've never done that, it's very awkward. Um, and I would encourage you at some point to try this because anytime I'm, I'm preaching, at least once a sermon, there's something I'm going to say that I know is going to get a reaction from her. And I can always pick her out in the crowd and I will watch her because I know the eye roll is coming. That's usually the reaction I get from her. But when I'm sitting right beside her, it's not an eye roll. She just, like, leans and looks at me and goes, really? Like, that's what you decided to say there? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. You should laugh, you know. But she didn't think so, but that's beside the point. But that was our, our church service, right? <clears throat> we would have to find something for a communion. And the first few weeks, you know, we bought a bottle of grape juice and we bought some little crackers, and that's what we did. And then... Uh, there was one Sunday in particular, I think she actually had to work, and I forgot about all that. And Elsie's in there with me, and my kids want to take communion with me. And I'm like, oh, i got to find something really quick, because it's coming up in the service, because I put this video together, I know where it's at. I got a box of Jesus and a can of Dr. Pepper, and that's what we used. And I was like, you know, it's funny, and I think I, I posted a picture of it. But at the end of the day, the exact elements, it's not that important. We have these little packets, and I'm actually going to encourage you, if you haven't got one yet, go ahead right now and get up and get one. Go ahead and make a scene now. Um, it's okay, because uh, we're going to actually going to take this before I'm done. Uh, so normally I tell you when I get up to do a communion meditation, you've got time to get it. We're not, the whole sermon is that today, okay? So go ahead and grab it sometime in the next few minutes. But this is what we have, these little packets. And we use these because they're, they're simple and they're easy. We can just throw them in a basket. Uh, we, we, we've debated whether we should pass the trays around again and go back to the little cups that are open with juice in them and the crackers on them. And we just got some folks that aren't quite comfortable with that yet. And we understand that. We want to respect that uh, to know that not everybody wants somebody putting their hands on something that they're getting ready to eat or drink. I, I, I get that. But we use these little packets, and, and there's the, uh, you know, the double layer, there's the little wafer. I'm not going to dignify this by calling it a cracker. I apologize. These are tasteless. I would imagine if you ate the little foam that comes on front of your cell phone when you open the new box, that's kind of what it would taste like. And this grape juice that none of us would buy if it was in the store. But the flavor isn't really what's important. 
Some churches use bread. Some use crackers. Some churches use a different kind of grape juice. Some use wine. People have asked us, why don't, why don't we use wine? Why do we use juice? And, and really the answer is two reasons. Number one, we want kids to be able to take this. We want uh, teenagers, people to take this and not have to worry about any questions that might get asked. But number two, we understand something that's very simple. Some of you, or for some of you, even just this much of, of a drink of alcohol could be a temptation to stumble into addiction. And, and we don't want anything that we do here to be an obstacle for any one of you. It's not a debate on whether or not a Christian should or shouldn't drink anything alcoholic. That's not the conversation. It's just that we don't want to potentially cause you to stumble in the way that we worship. But this little, this little packet of stuff here, this is going to do nothing for your physical body. This little wafer, this little shot of juice, it's not going to satisfy your hunger. It's not going to quench your thirst. Nothing about this is going to impact your dietary state of your body. But the spiritual state of your body, this is immeasurable. I would dare say that packed in this little packet here, and what we do when we take this together is quite possibly the most impactful thing in your world and in your universe. I would say probably the only thing that can even come close to registering to the same power in, in a symbol might be a wedding ring. This ring that I wear is about my commitment and my love for my wife. And she wears one that's about her commitment and her love for me, and that's powerful. And I will say when I do a wedding, one of the first things I say every time is that a, a marriage between a man and a woman is the, the closest earthly representation we can ever have to God's love for us. But here's the problem with this analogy. The power behind the rings my wife and I wear, it only exists between the two of us. It doesn't really affect or impact anybody else except for our kids. This is shared by Christians all over the world. Right now you could say Christians all over the globe are, are taking this. And I realize the time zones are there. I used to say that in Oregon and then it clicked with me. Actually, we're the last ones. Because <laughs> the next would be the ocean. And they're not taking it in the ocean, probably. But you get my point, right? We come together to worship God, whether we're here, whether we're on another part of this planet. Christians all over the world today are taking this together to remember what Christ has done, has done for us. Billions of Christians over the last 2,000 years share this together. And what I want to do with, with our time today is I want to break down what the communion time and the meal represents and what it's all about. And to do that, we're going to look in four different directions that communion should lead us to and draw us to in each one of those. The first direction is that communion looks backward. Communion looks backward. If you've got a Bible, uh, you, you've got a physical Bible and you've got your device, we're going to camp out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today. We've got it on the screens if you don't. But we're going to read and kind of work through a, a very famous passage of Scripture that is often read during a communion time. But it reads like this. It's written by the Apostle Paul some 20, 25 years after the time of Jesus. It says in verse 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, as we, we do this, just so you're aware, when it says the night that Jesus was betrayed, that's referring to Thursday night of the Passion Week. Okay, if you don't know the timeline, 
Thursday night, which is the night of the Lord's Supper. If you've ever seen the, the great painting by Da Vinci or, or you've, you know, you've seen any of the movies, that's, that's the night. That's the night that they have the meal. They have the, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and then they go out. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's put on trial. All these sham and mock trials overnight. The next morning, he's beaten and he's flogged, and by noon, he's put on a cross. And by the middle of the afternoon, Jesus is, is dead, hanging from the cross, soon to be put into the tomb. That's the night that Jesus is referring to here through the words of Paul. But what Paul's saying here, and I think what Jesus is wanting us to ultimately look at, is communion does not just go back to that night. It actually goes back a lot further. In fact, 1,450 years earlier, 1,450 years before the time of Jesus, we read about another key figure in the Bible by the name of Moses. And if you're unfamiliar with his story, just the, the, the long story short version is by the, the gap between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Joseph takes them there at the end of, of uh, Genesis, and they're, they're prospering, but then new pharaohs come in, and all, over time, they put the Israelites into captivity, they use them as slaves, and, and it's, it's torture. Moses grows up in Egypt as, a, as an Israelite, but he ultimately escapes from there, runs off into the wilderness, starts a family, gets married, works for his father-in-law for 40 years, until God gets his attention. And God gets his attention through a burning bush, calling him to go back to Egypt and, and tells him, go to Pharaoh and, and march into Pharaoh's chambers and tell him to let my people go. And maybe you remember that movie with Charlton Heston marching in there with his big voice, let my people go. And this is going to shock you what comes next. But Pharaoh tells him no. No, I don't think so. I think I'll keep him. And, and so through Moses, God gives Pharaoh some warnings. Hey, let them go or, or we're going to unleash some, some plagues on you. And they're going to progressively get worse. And, and one after the next, these plagues come. Pharaoh doesn't relent until the last plague that comes, the tenth plague. If you don't remember it, it's called the death of the firstborn. And what God said is he's going to come in and the firstborn son of everybody is going to be killed with one exception. He said, if you take a lamb, your most pure and spotless lamb that you have, and you slaughter it, and you paint its blood over the doorpost and around the doorpost of your home, then the angel of death will pass over your home and you'll be spared. Anybody under the blood of the lamb was spared the death that was coming to the judgment of God. And so that happens, and the next morning, I, I always picture that being like the, it's just the hardest scene in the Bible to potentially see. Just hearing the screams and the shrieks of the parents, seeing their firstborn sons killed. But Pharaoh's had enough, and he tells Moses, get your people out of here. I don't want any more to do with you and your people. And so they leave, and they go. And as they go, they enter into a period of, of going into the wilderness for 40 years before finally they get to the promised land. And then the rest of the story of Israel is one of constant coming to God and turning away from God and suffering and just a cycle that goes on and on, waiting for God to ultimately send a Messiah and a Savior. Every year, Jewish people come together uh, for a time that, that is remembering that moment. It's called Passover. And when they come together to remember Passover, they come to a meal of Passover. And when you, you see the Passover plate, you probably can't see this one from where you're sitting today. It is kind of an intricate, interwoven tapestry of symbolism. 
Everything on this plate represents something. And to a Jewish person, they're going to know what all of these elements represent. The first thing they see is, is fresh leafy greens. Mine have wilted after sitting here in the lights for three hours, but you get the point, right? Pretend these are really fresh looking. <laughs> they get these leafy greens that represent life, specifically life that was given to them by God. And they take the first one and they dip it into salt before they eat it. Because the salt symbolizes the tears that were shed by their ancestors while they were in slavery. Then they take the next of the leafy greens, again, that represents the life God gave them, and they dip it into bitter herbs, and they eat that. They're, they're unpleasant to eat. They're attack on your, uh, an attack on your palate and an attack on your senses, kind of like horseradish might be. Or if you ever put a little bit of uh, wasabi on, on a piece of sushi, it's kind of the same idea. It, it, it's to remind you the bitterness and the harshness that they endured in slavery. Next year, they, they come to something called the, the haraset. The haraset is, it looks probably from your perspective like hamburger meat sitting here, but it's actually a really, really tasty mix of apples and cinnamon and honey and, and, and some walnuts and some brown sugar mixed together with a little bit of wine that, that turns into this paste that looks an awful lot like the mortar they used to make bricks and to build things on behalf of Pharaoh. From there, they would move on to an egg on their plate. Now, now scholars have debated what the egg means, but ultimately, I think it means life. When you say, well, the green means life, it does. The white represents new life. Because if you've seen an egg, you know that's what an egg is. It's a new life inside the egg. It's white, it's clean, it's fresh, it's pure. It, it looks like something that has been washed, specifically washed by God. There are cups representing uh, the blood of the land that was painted over the doorpost to protect the people inside. And then there would be bread. Specifically, there is bread that is what's called unleavened bread. Bread that's made without yeast. You see, when God told the Israelites to leave that night and they were released, he instructed them to make bread, but they didn't have time to make it properly. And so they didn't put yeast in there because some of you bake, you know how this works. I don't, so uh, <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong on here. Yeast takes time to activate and to rise. But there's something else with yeast, too, that's fascinating. Yeast spreads. And, and so when it comes to the bread like this, it is thin and can be hard. This one's not super hard. It's kind of like a, like a pita, almost like a flatbread. But... The bread that has yeast in it represents sin that comes into our life. Because if sin gets into your life, it spreads. I think it's impossible to sin one time and not be that. Sin spreads and it grabs a hold of you like that. And so this bread that was, was without yeast, that was made as they left, it represents a sinless life that God can provide. Now, understand this. When it comes to this meal, this meal, every Jewish person understands what it means. They're going to know what all of these elements mean. They're going to know that this bread represents the sinlessness that God can provide. Now, flash back forward to the night of, of the Passover with Jesus. And those 12 Jewish men are sitting around the table with him. And he takes the piece of bread that may have looked like this. It may not have looked just like this. I don't know. But he takes it. And he starts to break it. And he says, this is my body. When you eat this. You're eating my flesh. Do this in remembrance of me. 
What he is telling them holds more power than we might realize because what Jesus is telling them in this moment is this bread represents sinlessness. If you take me, I represent sinlessness. In other words, what he's telling them is the entire story of our people, the entire story of Israel is being fulfilled in me. It's being laid out in me. And I am the living sacrifice that's about to be broken for you. They would not have missed that, that symbolism that night. Now, they might not have got it all because we know the disciples, we know one thing. They didn't always catch anything that was right in front of their face. But it's not the first time Jesus has told them this. You go back a couple of years earlier. And Jesus performs one of the miracles we read about in John where he takes two fish and five loaves of bread and, and he blesses it and multiplies it and, and it feeds 5,000 men. doesn't count the women and the children. I think we could conservatively say 15,000 people at least were fed by this kid's snack. Okay, basically this kid's lunchable fed that many people. And then Jesus takes off and he walks across the water. That, that's the story of him walking on the water. That's next. Goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is basically a big lake. The people notice him and they ran around the lake to meet him the next day. And they, they said, hey, can you do that for us again? And Jesus calls him on it. He's like, no, no, you don't even want a miracle. You just want me to feed you again. Because yesterday you ate that bread that I provided for you. And guess what? You're hungry again. And so he gives them a sermon. And in that sermon, he makes a declaration where he says, no, this bread makes you hungry again. But I am the bread of life. If you eat me, you'll never be hungry again. And he goes on in that sermon to say this in John chapter 6. Uh, verse uh, 53, he says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of the ma- uh, Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And guess what the response is? 5,000 people walk away. Because they can't handle that. And to be fair, if somebody tells you that, if I stand up here one Sunday and say, Eat my flesh. You're like, okay, this dude is crazy. <laughs> I don't think we can do this. I don't think we can... We can follow this anymore. But that's what he's saying here. That Israel was going to endure and suffer mightily while they were waiting on a Savior. And here he is saying, I'm here. Everything you waited for, I am. Communion, it looks backwards because communion is a continuation of Passover. It's a continuation of of this meal that wasn't just eaten so the Israelites could remember It was eaten so they could participate in what their ancestors and what their people had gone through. It's a continuation of Passover. Communion, yes, it does look backward. But because of Jesus and the hope in Him, communion also looks forward. It looks forward. Look at the next thing Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. He's quoting Jesus and says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. See, communion looks back at what Jesus did for us and what God has done for us through the entire story. But it also looks ahead at what Jesus is going to do for us next. And you may say, what's that mean? He kind of gives us a little glimpse here. If you've got a Bible, jump over to Luke chapter 22. Because in Luke 22, we actually read about the story as it's happening. In Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus is at the table with his disciples, and here's what he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. See, here's something you need to know about Jesus. If you don't know this, if you haven't been taught this, let me just let you in on a little secret. When Jesus 
died and, and, and rose again and went back into heaven, that's not the last of Jesus that we have seen. He will come again one day to collect his church. I, I grew up hearing about this like literally every Sunday. We talked about this and, and, and talked about the rapture and, and trying to discern revelation and, and, and line it up with what we're watching on the news and trying to make predictions and all this. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, man, none of that matters. All that matters is the truth, and I believe he's going to come back. And you may say, well, how do you come to that conclusion? That sounds pretty outlandish. Somebody who disappeared 2,000 years ago is just going to show back up. Call me crazy, but, but hear me out on this. Jesus made some pretty bold, outlandish predictions. He predicted that he would be betrayed by one of his best friends. And then he was. He predicted that he would be beaten and put on a cross and killed. And then he was. He predicted he would be laid in a tomb that had never been used before. And then he was. He predicted that he would rise again on the third day. And then he did. Number five, he predicted that he would ascend back into the, the heavens to be with the Father. And then he did. So call me crazy, but if somebody's five for five on pretty bold outlandish predictions, I'm going to bet the farm that he's going to fulfill the sixth one day. I'm willing to bet everything on my life that that's going to happen. That's the only promise that God's given us that he has not fulfilled yet. And I believe with everything in me that he one day will. And here's why I believe that. Because look what Jesus does during this, this Passover supper. In verse 17 of Luke 22, it says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink it again uh, from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Like, oh, hold on, Jesus. Wait a second. You've just told us you're going to die. And you've made the prediction you're going to rise again and go back to the Father. And if you read the Bible and you read the timeline, that's all like a six-week process. Passover is not for another year. So how can Jesus take this again with us? And how can he do this in the kingdom of God if, if he's saying that it, 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 has to, it has to come and has to be fulfilled? He, he, he's acknowledging that there's a gap here. There's a gap between his resurrection and his second coming. That's what we're living in right now. You might have heard it referred to as the last days or the end times. And maybe you read that and you think, oh, well, that means he's going to come back like possibly tomorrow. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll come back before we leave here today. Maybe he'll come back after all of us have ended our earthly time and we've all gone to heaven anyway. I don't know. I know the original apostles believed he would come back during their lifetime. They, they write about that. They, they make allusions to that. They called their lifetime, those first 30 or 40 years after Jesus, the end of time, the end days, the last days. And so we read this, and Jesus is telling us, it's going to happen. And he goes on in verse 20, as he's going on in this, this supper, it says, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And you may say, well, wait, he just had a cup, now he's got another cup. How many cups does he need? Well, how many drinks do you go through in a meal? I mean, I will sit there and usually have a water when I sit down and maybe order a Dr. Pepper or a sweet tea. Some of you do the same, or if you really don't like yourself, you'll order an unsweet tea for some reason. But that's a different question, right? But I'm up for the free refills. And the longer the meal, often the more I need. When you went to a, a Passover Seder, you would see four cups of wine that would be there for the evening. And, and it was up to the host of the meal to, to go through these, these cups. 
And as they would take each of these cups, they would offer a toast at a different moment in the meal. And and they would read part of Exodus chapter 6 as they did so. And and, and so when, when the people all arrived and they had all shown up, the host would take the first cup and he would read the beginning of Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. He would raise his glass and he would read the instructions God gave to Moses for his people where it says, tell them I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And they would toast their glass and they would drink the first glass of wine and they would begin the festivities of the evening. And then a little bit later, just before they sat down to have the meal, they would take the second glass. And he would raise the glass for the, for the second glass of wine. And he would continue with the second part of verse 6, where it says, I will free you from being slaves to the Egyptians. And they would, would, would give a toast and, and, and drink the second glass of wine. And they would sit and they would have their meal. And after the meal, when the meal was complete, they would come to this third glass of wine. This third glass, which can be referred to as the cup of communion. And they would raise this third glass and they would read the last little bit of verse 6 where it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. This is sometimes referred to as the cup of redemption. You see this. Redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. What image pops into your head? I know for me, I think of the the most mighty act of judgment that could be done when two arms were outstretched onto a cross. When the Son of God was beaten and broken for us so that we could be redeemed. Because you see, here's what redemption actually means. The word redemption is, is a word that is used by Paul in Romans chapter 3 to talk about what Jesus did on the cross for us. But redemption specifically is defined as, as being bought out of slavery to be set free. Being purchased with a price so that you could be free. In other words, it's like you're on the auction block and somebody buys you. And as they walk out, they say, you're free. I paid it for you. Go be free. And for us, we were bought with the price. We were bought with the blood of the lamb that God paid on that particular night. And you'll have to forgive me here for just a moment. Because I'm using a little bit of conjecture here. This isn't specifically spelled out in the Bible, but just using... Everything I I, I can think of when I study and read through this. This was the cup that Jesus had that night. This is what I think, that Jesus took this third cup. And this is the one he said, drink this. Because this is my blood being poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood being poured out for you. And this is the one that he passed around the table that night. That's just my conjecture. That's just my guess here. And I think one more thing about the meal, too. The one thing I didn't mention that was included in the Passover meal was the main course, which was the lamb. They would slaughter a lamb, and it would be put on the middle of the table, surrounded by all of this. And I just have a guess, just a a sneaking thought that night, there was no lamb on the table. Because Jesus was the host of this meal. He was the one toasting these glasses. And I just pictured there not being a lamb at the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. The true lamb was sitting there among them, waiting to be beaten and broken and poured out for them. So he could take them back to the Passover. Take them back to what God did in the very beginning, back in Egypt. When when the angel of death came and and he took out the firstborn sons. For everybody except who? Those who were under the blood of the lamb. And here's the blood, the, the lamb of God sitting at the table. 
waiting to pour out his blood so that everybody under him could be spared death that he was about to receive. The Lamb of God took the brunt for us that night. The firstborn Son of God. The death that I deserve. That you deserve. He took it that night so we could have life. We could have new life. Sinless life. Life that is clean and washed and fresh. And I just have a feeling that's what he did with that third cup of wine that night. There's a fourth cup that's here too. And and you may wonder what that fourth cup is about. And again, forgive me for using some conjecture here. I kind of have a feeling Jesus took that fourth cup that night and he just put it over here. And said, I'll come back to that one. And I think that's what he meant when Jesus said, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Because this fourth cup, that's what the host would raise when the party was over. That's what the host would raise when everybody was about to leave. Because they would raise this fourth cup. And they would read Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. Where it says, God says, I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. That verse sound familiar to anybody? You heard that somewhere else in the Bible? When you get to the end, when you get to Revelation chapter 21, we see that Jesus has returned. That he's come riding in on the white horse. He didn't do that the first time around, but he will this time. And he's not going to come back as the friendly, uh, you know, the, the soft, friendly, warm Jesus. He's going to come as a conquering king. The lion of the tribe of Judah, ready to roar. And he's going to decimate everything of this earth. Get rid of our enemy. Throw them into the lake of fire. Bring a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And here's what John says in Revelation 1.23. He says that he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with, with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And that's where I feel this fourth glass will come in. Because once Jesus gets rid of our enemies and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, he's going to throw a banquet that we refer to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I just guess that's where he's going to raise this fourth glass. He's going to say, I'm here. You're my people. And I'm yours. And we're going to live and dwell together. Communion. It looks backward and it looks forward into what he's going to do for us. But here's the truth about communion. Communion, it preaches the gospel. It tells us everything about what God has done for his people, why it matters, and what he's going to continue doing for us. And that's why there's power in it. Yes, this looks and tastes like nothing. This is not something you go buy at the store. But yet in this is everything. It's powerful. There's something in here, yes. I don't know what, but there's something in here. And it's so powerful that Paul actually puts a warning on how we should come to the table to take it. Back to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27, Paul says, So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. See, communion, it looks backward and it looks forward, but it also looks inward. It looks inward and it exposes our hearts before God. 
there are some churches, maybe some of you grew up in one of these churches where when you take communion, uh, there's a belief in, in the teaching that when the, the pastor or the priest literally, or when, when they pray over the, the, the bread and the juice, or the bread and the wine, that it will literally become the body and the blood of Christ. It's this theory called uh, transubstantiation, that the body is, tra- or the, the, the elements are transforming literally into Jesus. I, I don't personally believe that, and we don't teach that. And, and the reason I don't is simple. I believe that if this is literally becoming his body and his blood every time that we take communion, that we're putting Jesus back on the cross every time we come together. And the Bible's very clear in Hebrews that he went to the cross and he died once and for all. One time was all it took. That's how powerful his blood was. So we don't need to put him back on the cross. So, so we, will, we will say very clearly, these are elements, these are symbols, whatever term you want to use. It represents his body. That represents his blood. And so I don't believe this is literally his body and his blood, but it's still something powerful. Because Paul also goes on in his warning in verse 29, when he says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why so many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, if you know the Bible when it says falling asleep, you know what that means. You're not asleep, you're dead. And suddenly some of you are like, hang on, okay, I'm going to put this back. I'm not, t- I'm not taking the chance today. You know, I mean, I'd like to go to heaven, but not right now, okay? So I'll come back and I'll take that later when I'm feeling a little better about myself. You kind of have to look at what Paul means here. Because I, I think the idea behind this is that if I have any sin in my heart, I can't take communion. And, and yes, communion is a great time to examine your heart and ask God to forgive you for whatever sin you've committed, to ask God to forgive you. But I don't think it's that simple what Paul is saying here. I think what he is referring to is coming to God, not necessarily with a messy heart, with an impure heart. Coming to God with the wrong attitude, with the wrong approach. Remember what I said earlier about Moses. God visited him in the burning bush, and God tells him, the first thing he says is, take off your shoes, because where you're standing is holy ground. One of my favorite professors back in Bible college, a man we just affectionately called Griff, um, used to say this all the time. He'd remind us, every once in a while, we've got to take our shoes off. He was, he was meaning literally, take off your shoes wherever you're standing, because sometimes you need to remember that you're on holy ground. And I love it because Griff would tell us this all the time. He would say, never, ever approach the throne of God flippantly. Never approach it without purpose and intentionality, and never approach it without humility and sincerity. You want to know what it means to take communion appropriately? It means that we forget that when we come to worship God, and make no mistake, this is an act of worship. Maybe it's the act of worship. Do not do it without humility and sincerity. Coming to Him without honor, without praise, recognizing not just what he did on the cross for us, but what he's done for us throughout all of time, and what he's continuing to do for us today. We come to him. And and understand this too, like I said, coming to, to the table with sin in your heart doesn't disqualify you. Because often, often the sin we commit, it's vertical sin. It's something I've done against God. One of the commandments I've broken that's directly against him. I think the sin that we've got to be more aware of is the horizontal sin. 
The sin we've committed against each other and against specifically the body of Christ. Against his church, against his people. Because while communion looks inward, it also looks outward. It looks outward to those around us. And I think taking communion inappropriately is when you take this, the body of Christ, and you put the body of Christ into your own life while you are actively dividing and hurting the body of Christ around you. I said this last week, we are his church. Not just this building, not just this service, but we, us. And we are not just his church, we are his bride. And we are one. We are meant to be one. So Paul says in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Communion connects us to Jesus, but communion also connects us to the Christian community. It connects us to the world around us. And I look at these two words up here, communion and community, they're so similar. But at the end of the word communion is what? It's the word union. And at the end of community is what? It's the word unity. And so as we take communion, even though typically the way we take communion here is that we'll pray for it and you can take it individually or you can take it with your family units, we're still taking it as one. And even though we might be in a different time zone and maybe another church did it an hour ago, we're taking it collectively with the body of Christ around the world every single week that we take it. I'm going to invite you today to take this together. So that's, that's our takeaway today. Is that we're going to take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ together. So you can go and start to open them. Don't, don't take them just yet. The band's going to come out and they're going to follow up with a song of praise. But I want you to understand this as we come to his table. If you have sin in your heart, that doesn't disqualify you or push you away from the table. It should draw you into the table. Because the table of God exposes your sin, not so that you can be shamed, not so that you can, can, can be humiliated, but so that you can see your need for your Savior. That you can see your need for the blood of Jesus. And it's a perfect time to ask God to forgive you, to redeem you, to restore you, to justify you, and free you from the wrath of God that was taken out on Jesus on the cross. I'm going to ask you to prepare your, your elements today. And, and if you bear with me, I'm just going to read one more little bit of scripture. We're going to take these together. We take our bread this morning. We read the words that Paul wrote. For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we're thankful for the body of Jesus that was broken for us to represent sinlessness in our lives. We ask that you would be honored if we take this. In Jesus' name, you take your, your bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. Father, we're so grateful for the blood of the Lamb. That we can be under so that we can be saved from death. 
God, I pray that as we take this, we would always honor you and remember you. In Jesus' name. Father, we cannot even begin to express our faith and our gratitude to you for sending your Son to be our sacrifice. God, to remind us of what you have done for us, to show us what you will continue to do for us in the future. God, I just pray that in everything that we do, we honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Oh, uh-huh. 
not wait until that day. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know there's so many hearts in this room that are longing for that day when the brokenness is gone, when the shame is gone, when the hurt is gone, where it's not even a distant memory, but it's a it's erased. Jesus, you already did that by the power of your blood. If you would just lean in a little harder than you have. Thank you for communion. Thank you for this model, this reminder of what happened and even more exciting what's happening. That you're making all things new. We'll praise your name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Good morning. Before we have our closing chorus, I want to touch on a couple of announcements, but I also want to make a confession. As noon approaches, I find myself becoming a Miami Dolphins fan. I don't know why, but I just I feel like cheering for them today. And a little bit of Baltimore Ravens, too. You with me on that? Okay, all right. A couple of announcements that I want to make. Small group sign-ups begins today. All right, so you can go to our church website and you can read about the various small groups that are available. Some of you may already be in a small group that carries over from last year. Great. You know, keep on keeping on as far as your small group goes. But for those of you that are not in a small group, we want to encourage you to do that because there are some dynamics that just can't happen on a Sunday morning that can happen in a small group setting. So go to the website, see what small groups are available. You can even email whoever the leader is. Their email address is there um, for questions of clarification that you might have. Um, but anyway, you can make that sign up, make that decision. So, And that starts today. The other thing I want to highlight for those of you that have kids that are down the hall in children's uh, worship and children's classes, um, we've got Nerf and Nachos coming up on the last Friday of the month, uh, the deadline for signing up for that is this Friday, okay? kind of need to have a heads up as to how many are going to be participating in that. You can read all the details as far as what's going to be happening and all online. You can read some of them in your bulletin. And the last thing I want to plug here is the February primetime. February 1st, there is a primetime. Um, and, uh, yeah, disregard the picture, but, but, uh, the thing that I want to draw your attention to is the potluck meal. We don't have potlucks. Not like we used to. We used to, when we were a smaller church, it was a whole lot more conducive. You have a worship service, you move right into a potluck meal. And so we, you know, had potlucks more frequently. And when we became a church of multiple services, it's just more challenging to do that. Well, that's basically what we're doing uh, the first Sunday of February is we're going to have a potluck on that Wednesday, and I I, I would uh, uh, consider you to be in the inner circle among my best friends if you take out a small loan from your bank and make some deviled eggs. Okay? So uh, let's have some deviled eggs at this potluck. 
Uh, anyway, you can you can sign up for that as well online. We just need to have an idea of how many tables and chairs to have ready for that. All right. All right, go ahead and stand, and we're going to sing a closing song. Before we do, I want to draw attention to uh, the roast part of the prime time. It's going to be a lot of fun. I consider myself to be a good person, but I think I'm going to try to make him cry. So you're going to want to be there. Anyways, Brad, as you know, has been the senior pastor of this church for about 27 years, and he's going to be changing roles and taking a short break in between there. So it's really a time for us to uh, rouse him a little bit, but also love on him. So we hope you'll be here for that. All right, let's sing God to Love. Can you hit the next slide for me, Wendy? Thank you. Oh, I hope I took my cape off. Come, are you weary? Come, are you thirsty? Come to the well that never runs dry. Drink of the water.